Uh, so we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you to acknowledge that when we come into your presence, we're in the presence of the Almighty God who made heaven and earth, who sits on the throne and rules in majesty and power. We marvel that you even allow us into your presence through the work of your Son and the activity of your Holy Spirit. We bow before you in worship, silenced by all. We pray that you be with us this evening as we look at your word. Give us receptive hearts, we pray. Minds open to fresh insights from your word. And spirits at one with your spirit, so that we hear clearly. And take your word and apply it faithfully. Whether we're in our first steps of faith or mature in the faith, we acknowledge that we need to hear from you this evening. Pray that you'll be with us in all that we do and sing and say. In your name, Amen. Amen. We're going to sing uh, an opening hymn, He Who Would Valiant Be. It's probably uh, perhaps not a very usual hymn that we sing, but I chose this because it really reflects something of what we're going to discuss this evening. Um, something of the challenge of the Christian walk. Of course, we're not pilgrims in the sense of chasing after an earthly place but we're pilgrims on our way to a heavenly place. So let's stand and sing uh, this song. You see? So I wanted at the outset to uh, set the scene for what we're going to discuss tonight, and I hope uh, Graham's going to put a, a kind of overview slide up. And I wanted to just recall the principles that Jeff set out for us in approaching Revelation. And the first point that he made was that the book is about Jesus and his work. And tonight we're going to see Jesus fighting the battle against Satan and how the church and the world are involved in that battle. He also reminded us that it's a pastoral letter written to the churches of Asia Minor. This epistle spoken to a time of great persecution. Would this fledgling church survive the rigours of Roman oppression? John's answer is a confident yes, which I'm sure would have encouraged the churches. Their battle is not against the powers of this world, but against spiritual powers of Satan, and they have been defeated at the cross, and will win a glorious victory as time closes. Finally, Jeff reminded us that this letter of Revelation should be seen as a new way of visualising truth. It's not new or extended theology, but a revisitation of truth that we see documented in the Old and the New Testament. And we'll see that clearly in the way that the passage unfolds to us. There's many allusions, if you like, back to Old Testament stories. So in this section we're going to look at four entities, if you like, who are revealed to us in this book of Revelation. The first is the church, and we're going to look at the church faithful, persecuted and victorious. Then we're going to look at the world and the two beasts presented in the chapter 13, representing the political and ideological uh, aspects of the world. And we're going to look at Satan who fell and is at war with the church and is now defeated, and at God who is victorious and in control. And running through all of that is the, the battle that we fight. A battle that's spiritual, that's fought by the church, but also by us as individuals that make up the church. And so you might want to think, even at this point in the service, 
what battles are you fighting at the moment? Because that can then set the frame as we go through this discussion and we'll come back to that at the end. And that the other frame within which we're going to look at the passage this evening is uh, what we're told in Revelation 1, that we should know these things so that we know what must take place. But I guess much of Revelation is uh, principles and cryptic pictures that perhaps only in time will become tr- uh, clear to us. Still there's much that we can learn and apply to our lives today. Taking them to heart as Revelation 1 suggests we should. We're also solemnly warned in Revelation 22 that we should be careful not to add to these words or take away from them and that's a challenge to us isn't it? Many have added to these words and predicted things that have clearly not come to pass. But equally it would be wrong to ignore them and miss out on their message. So one thing that occurred to me as I was preparing for this sermon was how perhaps Mary's attitude in Luke 2 was a helpful one. Remember that Mary had been told that she would conceive of a child and that that would be the Christ. And that um, that had come to pass. She knew that she'd become pregnant despite being a virgin. And it says that she treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. So they weren't necessarily for public display but she still, still treasured them and I thought, thought perhaps that was a helpful attitude that we should have in some aspects of revelation. Not that we shouldn't preach the gospel of course, but that's some of the aspects we need to be cautious with. <coughs> We're going to spend some time in prayer. And, um, I might leave some spaces for you to bring your own prayers in the, in the gap as uh, we pray. So let's pray. Lord, as we come before you with our petitions, we acknowledge again our unworthiness and your grace and love in sending sending the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Saviour. We acknowledge that once we were lost, like the lost son we talked about this morning, subjects of sinfulness and slaves of unrighteousness, but you rescued us and brought us into your kingdom. We come before you to humbly thank you and worship you for your mercy. We ask you to strengthen us in our feebleness. We doubt. We acknowledge that we still fall into sinful ways too readily and fail to be the people you want us to be. Help us to be strong in you and in your spirit's power. We want to bring ourselves to you to serve you as we bring our gifts now. We pray that you would use them both the material gifts that we've made but also the gifts of our bodies to serve you through this week. We bring before you now some of our needs. We pray for Jeff and Hannah in Ireland. We pray that you would bless them and give them a real time time of rest after the busyness of the last two or three weeks. That they might return to us refreshed. (laughs) We pray for Neil as he faces the challenge of travelling to to Senegal. 
as he meets with the churches there and speaks and shares. We pray that he would be easily understood despite the difficulties of language and culture and practices of faith. But that he might be a blessing to those he meets with and that they might also be a blessing to him and encouragement to him. And we think particularly as he visits the prison later this week and have an opportunity to share we pray that that would be a good time of blessing. Heavenly Father, we bring before you the needs of our nation. We feel like we're in a nation in spiritual decline, where faith in you is no longer truly valued. And uh, it hurts us that that is the case. We pray for our government and for our leaders and for the others who have influence over what we think, the media. We pray that you would raise up people faithful to you in these positions who would have strength and conviction to speak out. And that each of us as we go about through this week in that world that you would give us strength to speak out clearly where we disagree where we see things differently and to be able to share you positively with the people that we meet if we pray for our world we think particularly of Ukraine at this time and the uncertainty there we don't really know what to pray Lord but we trust that you're in control and we pray for peace and we pray that the leaders of the world would find a way to reach reconciliation and agreement without resorting to violence and we think of Veronica who we support and whose home is in Ukraine we pray for her at this time as she must feel anxious about changes there and we pray again for the families who've uh, been less uncertain with the with the aeroplane that's gone missing from Malaysia that must be a very difficult time for them and we pray that in your common grace you would give them peace and uh, some sense of knowing how to deal with the the lack of knowing while the search goes on and Lord as we turn to your word now and seek to learn from it we pray that you would open our hearts and make them receptive help us to see your truth in a fresh way in a way that's not theoretical or obscure but practical that strengthens us to take your goodness and your gospel into this coming week amongst the people that we need so we ask all these things in your name for your glory Amen, Amen.
Our reading is from Revelation chapter 12. It's titled The Woman and the Dragon. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation, and the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, time, and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. And from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river, to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Thanks be to God for his word. summarises again where we're going to go in the sermon this evening and we're going to move between the different chapters that were I was allocated 11 to 14 so I know we've only read 12 but hopefully uh, you'll have read the other chapters and uh, we'll move through those as well 
So we're going to start with the church, as I said. What is revealed to us about the church in this passage? And I suggest there are three key things. The first is that the church is faithful in its witness. And this really comes out in chapter 11, verses 1 to 14, where we're presented with two witnesses. But before we're presented with the two witnesses comes a vision of a man measuring out the temple, which holds echoes of a vision in Ezekiel, four, chapters 40 to 42, where the vision there represents the security and certainty of return after exile for the Israel, for the Jewish nation from Babylon. So here the vision represents the security of God's people in this difficult time. It can be measured and therefore is true. The, and uh, face the time of the Gentiles at this time as well, but the imagery here is of, of that being limited to 42 months. And this is a number which represents something which is limited in time. And then we see the two witnesses. And uh, these witnesses appear to represent uh, the law and the prophets. And I say that because they have the power of turning water into blood, and that's reminiscent of Moses turning the water into blood in Egypt. And they call down fire from heaven, which is reminiscent of Elijah, and Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. They're also referred to as two olive trees, which may refer back to Zechariah chapter 4, where when God is asked about two olive branches, he replies that these are two witnesses that are going to speak for the whole earth. So you can already see that there are lots of pictures and imagery here going back to the Old Testament. The uh, commentary that we're following suggests that these are two real people, two actual people, but they represent the responsibilities of the church in witnessing and their faithfulness. And certainly you can see that the two witnesses are faithful in that activity, even up to the cost of death. That's quite a challenge that, uh, that these witnesses then present. A challenge that maybe not many of us will face. But maybe our call is to be faithful in, it, in just as a challenger, challenging an environment, as we'll see as we go on to the next aspect of the church, the church under persecution. And for this we really turn to chapter 12 that Sue read to us and we saw that the offspring of a woman were being pursued by the dragon. Here the symbolism is of the woman being the Jewish nation. And I say that because the moon and the stars and the twelve sorry, so the, the sun and the moon and the twelve stars are reminiscent of Joseph's dream in the Old Testament where the dream represented his father and mother and brothers bowing down to him. And the woman gives birth to a child who is clearly Jesus it says that he will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And then it speaks of her other offspring uh, who are clearly the church. And we see in chapter 12 how the dragon pursues these, both the woman and her children. And his efforts are to destroy the, the woman by spewing water from his mouth and destroying her children by making war. This imagery would have been very obvious to the churches of Asia Minor who were being oppressed at this time by the Roman authorities and that oppression would only get worse over the forthcoming generation. The wilderness here is also a powerful image of, from the Old Testament, from the stories of Elijah 
and the Israelites in the wilderness where God sustained them and he will sustain us in our persecution. I guess we're fortunate not to suffer overt persecution but as was commented on in our house group this, uh, the other week maybe the slow creeping insidious erosion of truth in our country is a more effective weapon against us as a church and somehow we've been deceived into a form of syncretism a mixing of worldly ideology and, theolo- and true theology such that our witnesses made ineffectual and we're no longer distinctive as a church just before I came out I was watching Songs of Praise and there was an artist being discussed and she described herself as a Christian artist not in the sense that she presented uh, uh, sort of sacred pictures but that uh, she felt that her Christian faith influenced her, her paintings and uh, she was sharing on the programme how when she'd been at art school um, her tutor had said to her that she needed to toughen up a bit and that if she didn't uh, drop her faith then she was never going to be a truly great artist that's a very subtle form of persecution isn't it but one that she said she struggled with for quite a long time and I guess many of us might come across that in our work setting where we're under some subtle undermining of our Christian faith but almost as an effective, effective as a persecution as overt persecution so we've seen the need for the church to be uh, faithful in its witness and we've seen the church suffering persecution in this passage, in these chapters. Uh, We need also to turn to chapter 14 where we're told how the church is to be perfected. You go to the next slide, Grant, thank you. So I know we discussed the 144,000 last week and we have some differences of opinion um, but here the 144,000 does seem to clearly represent the universal church and uh, it's described in some of the words that I've put up there on the screen as a church we bear God's mark we're secure and they're singing and they're redeemed and purchased and pure with no lies in their mouths and blameless this is a picture of a church that's victorious and saved in heaven a destiny that we can be certain of I really cover that time it will be good won't it to be free of the difficulties and challenges that we face in life the struggle with sin overcome the struggle with ill health overcome and a struggle against the world overcome we'll enjoy and revel in that experience and our confidence is no arrogant claim of superiority but a quiet confidence that we can reflect on in times of struggle and difficulty so if something of the church has been revealed to us the next thing that's revealed to us in these chapters is the world and Satan's instruments in the world in chapter 13 we're given the picture of two beasts and we haven't probably got time to go into exactly why but the commentators say that the first beast is one of political power and perhaps this leads back to Daniel chapter 7 where four beasts are represented as four kingdoms that will come before Christ Christ comes to earth 
and in retrospect can be identified with four specific kingdoms that ruled in the Middle East. Note the symbols of this beast, this first beast, with his horns and his crowns and his wounded head that may represent the injury caused by Christ that was predicted in Genesis chapter 3. I guess this is one of the parts that's quite challenging. Does this first beast then represent simply the Roman Empire for those first century Christians? Does it represent political oppression in general or some specific future satanic empire? And I think the commentators differ in their emphasis. But surely the first century readers would have seen this as being true for them. What does it say to us today? Well, elsewhere in scripture we see political forces are represented as neutral and it depends on whether they're in God's hands or Satan's hands. But I suggest that we need to be clear that when men claim that political ideas or systems will bring victory over the troubles of this world based on humanist ideas, then we must stand against that. I don't really mean that we should become political players, but that where we see that ingrained in our in the, in the opinions of the people that we meet and our colleagues as we often do that we should stand against that and be firm and represent the true way because whether it's left or right communism or capitalism man's ideology, ideology is ultimately all flawed because man himself is flawed so we need to be able to make clear statements as we meet people day to day about these things. And then we're shown a second beast, a beast that represents religious or ideological ideas rather than political ideas. This is somebody who appears as a lamb and mimics the miracles of God and the Old Testament prophets. And in much the same way that we shouldn't be duped by political ideology, we shouldn't be duped by false beliefs. There are pseudo-religious beliefs that can easily afflict us. And I suggest that the greatest risk to the church in our country is not Islam or other religious convictions, but the secularism that's arisen within Western beliefs. And I see this at, at university, I see how people take e- evolution and give it a mind and a heart and, and make something of it that, it that it could never ever be. And by doing that, they undermine the message of God revealed in creation. And when we trust in materialism for our security, then we undermine our trust in God. The Bible tells us that these ideologies in this beast are betrayed by the voice of the beast. I don't know if you tried to read The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. I made a start on it, and by about page 10 it had become obvious that it was such an embittered diatribe that I couldn't read any further. Its voice betrayed it. So these are things that we also need to stand against. So something about the church, something about the world, now something about Satan and his spiritual power. And again, presented to us in imagery that Sue read to us in chapter 12. We see this dragon presented to us that's clearly named as Satan later on in the chapter. With seven heads, ten horns and seven crowns, who's coloured red for strife, seven for completeness, 
heads for authority and crowns for rule, horns for power, and we're told that his tail cast down a third of the stars from heaven. We presume that the fall of Satan happened before Genesis, before the world was created. So we see Satan fallen. His mission is the destruction of the woman and her offspring. He leads the whole world astray. Make no mistake, this is a malevolent force, not a cartoon devil with a trident. And when we see what Job suffered at the hands of Satan, it's real and serious. And then we learn that Michael and his angels made war against the serpent and that the serpent lost and were flung down to earth. Again, the timing of all of this seems unclear in the text. Not sure whether it happened before creation or at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. See that well depicted in the story of Job. But lastly, and most importantly, we learn that Satan has been overcome. In chapter, 11, uh, chapter 12, verse 11, it says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, speaking of, of the same, and by the word of their testimony. We have been overcome at the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so although some of the images of Satan may daunt us, we know ultimately he is defeated. And so, what about God and his heavenly powers? I suppose in some ways there's only snippets of that in these chapters, perhaps because the forthcoming chapters are going to give us more about the final victory of God. However, each subsection ends with a victory song. For example, in 11, chapter 11, verse 15, it says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. I don't know if it captures for you the celebration that again we touched on this morning, that Wellesley touched on that happens when someone becomes a Christian, but there's a real sense of celebration in heaven here as people break forth in song, celebrating God's victory and his overruling of time. So there are some sobering thoughts in this passage about Satan and the world, things that might daunt us in our faith, but we should always be reminded that the ultimate victory belongs to good over evil, the cross triumphs over the difficulties of life. Christ defeats Satan and God rules in heaven. So thoughts about the battle then. So first of all, the battle is a spiritual battle. The forces of Satan and Michael's spiritual forces. Because we don't want to make everything over-spiritual. 
in my youth I visited a local church where the language at the time was that everyone was possessed by a spirit, a spirit of criticism or a spirit of gossip and this had to be prayed for and uh, exercised if you like I guess that's something that we wouldn't be terribly comfortable with and I would agree but it would be equally wrong for it to be the other way that the things that we face are purely of this world so maybe the battle that you thought about earlier on is a, has spiritual aspects to it Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that we do not battle against this dark world but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms so it's a spiritual battle that's fought by the church as well as a need for the church to be salt and light not passive but an active battle we need to actively stand against the evils of this world on the tube the other day I was standing by a group of teenagers while one bragged to the others that he kicked somebody in the head and they asked why did you do that and they said because he was crying I really felt I should have said something but I didn't in the moment it was hard to know what to say to make the right impact I guess you might say that was just a sort of practical experience not merely a spiritual one but I wonder whether we grasp opportunities to stand firm in our faith and say the right things at the right time but the battle is also personal Paul reminds us of that in Romans 17 in Romans 7 when he says that the things that I should do I don't do and the things that I shouldn't do I continue to do I guess that's something that we all can relate to in our day to day life we continue doing those things we're short tempered, we're selfish in our desires and we justify ourselves when we hurt other people so I wonder at the battle that you thought about at the beginning of the service how does this passage shed a light on that? How does it change the way that you feel about that battle? I want to take a few moments in discussion in groups of five or six and take a few couple of minutes at the beginning to just reflect on the battle that you thought of at the beginning and prepare and then within that, within the group of five or six if you can, share what that battle is that you're facing at the moment maybe it's the battle against a particular sin that you're struggling with maybe it's a battle with health issues or maybe a battle of doubt uncertainty it would be good if you could share that with one another that you could pray for one another in the group and perhaps even commit to praying with one another or praying for one another through this coming week just as a way of instruction I share with you a battle that I'm facing at the moment so uh, as most or many of you will know I was redundant a couple of years ago and I've really been kind of searching for what's next in my life and um, I've taken 
talked to quite a few people and had different opinions from people that I respect as Christian brothers and sisters. I've explored different possibilities of certain doors opened and closed, but I'm still pretty unsure in my own mind about where I should go. And I do see that as a spiritual battle. I do believe that God has something for me that I need to discern. So perhaps you'll pray for me in that situation that I might better understand where next for me. So if you break into smaller groups and have that discussion and then in a few minutes I'll pray and we'll close so with our final hymn. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come together as a family of believers and we value the time to share the challenges and difficulties in our lives. We don't really understand why life has to be this way. Um, That we struggle with sin repeatedly. That we struggle with the vagaries of life and the difficulties of ill health. But we thank you that we can bring these things to you and that you are our comfort and our strength, our real help in time of difficulty. And maybe that we learn something more about you and our need of you that we do face these difficulties and struggles. We pray that as we move into the coming weeks that you will keep what we share tonight that is of you close to our hearts that we might carry it with us into the week into the week and that anything that simply of me will be lost we thank you now for your presence with us the Holy Spirit in your name Amen share the words of the grace together. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.